the ability to create software is a superpower. But software education is not evenly distributed. Ryan Carson started Treehouse to provide a high-quality education system for anyone to learn how to build software. On a previous episode, Ryan and I discussed the field of programming education. Ryan returns to the show for a conversation about building Treehouse and the company's expansion from an online programming school to a platform for technology apprenticeship. Thousands of people learn to program on Treehouse. Ryan's goal is to connect those new programmers to companies where they can learn to apply those software skills to working at a technology company. Treehouse's apprenticeship program is used by Airbnb, Adobe, MailChimp, and others. By combining an online education platform with an apprenticeship program, Treehouse has created a business model that could allow it to grow significantly bigger than it already is, even in an online atmosphere where learning to program has been commodified to a large extent. The economic model of Treehouse contrasts with in-person boot camps such as Hack Reactor and online income sharing platforms such as Lambda School. It was a great conversation about modern technology, the future of education, and the strategy of building a successful business. Software Engineering Daily is looking for a head of growth. We're hiring, and if you're competent in sales, marketing, and strategy, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily. Brian Carson, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. It's good to be here. Thank you. It has been four years. How has the market for learning to program changed in that time? Uh, completely. <laughs> it's, uh, oh gosh, four years is an eternity. It's also the length of a college degree, which is kind of ironic. It <laughs> 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 shows you how that doesn't work. Gosh, it has fundamentally changed. I mean, you know, we're seeing the rise of apprenticeships. I think that's the big thing that's going on right now. I think education companies like Treehouse and others are realizing, you know, we can talk about teaching people all we want, but the reality is people need jobs, you know? And so we're seeing the rise of apprenticeships happen. We're seeing a lot of the kind of low quality, sketchy boot camps go out of business. We're seeing some of the larger companies get snapped up and bought. You know, we're thankful got acquired recently. You know, Pluralsight's been trying to buy up a bunch of people. So you're seeing a consolidation of the market. WeWork acquired somebody too, right? Oh, yeah, WeWork acquired Mission U, which is actually a friend of mine. Adam runs that, which was kind of the new model of college where you don't pay and then you learn something specific. And then once you get a job, then you pay it back. So the whole income share agreement, mm -hmm. they got bought by WeWork. What do you think of those, the income share agreements? You know, it's interesting. I think they're a step in the right direction because, you know, I think about college and the way I did it, it was, you know, either your parents could pay for it or you paid for it with student debt and there was no job guarantee at all. So that's bad. So I think ICEs are a move in the right direction, which is nice. I think the problem with them, and this is the major problem I have with boot camps. period, is that the whole reason I started Treehouse was to try to empower people to get access to jobs, right? And so the problem was, is that I grew up with a computer, you know, fell in love with that. My 11th grade teacher said, hey, Ryan, you know, you should study computer programming. And I was literally like, I don't know what programming is. And she said, well, it's where you tell the computer what to do and it does it. And I thought, 
that sounds fun. Let's do that. And of course, then I went and studied computer science, right? So I had all of these things that had to be true in order for me to become a computer science graduate, right? I had to grow up in a home uh, where I was safe, where I was well-fed, where there was a computer, where somebody said to me, hey, you should learn programming. And then I could afford college. Like all those things had to be true. And then I walk into my first interview. I actually moved to England for fun and I walked into interview in Cambridge, England. And I got the interview because of my computer science degree. You know, it was a requirement. And we're going through the interview. It's going fine. And then I say, well, what are we going to code in? What are we going to do here? And, and they said, we're going to write cold fusion. <laughs> and I said, I don't know what that is. I learned C++. You know? And they said, ah, oh, don't worry about it. Read a book. And I just thought, what is going on? This whole system is broken, right? You know, I got a computer. Well, you got thrown out of the interview? No, no, no. Then I got the job. That's the oh, irony. Oh, so they hired you and then gave you the cold fusion book. Yeah, and this is, this is the irony. This is the sick truth about the world, actually. Like, what determines whether you get jobs is not really what you know. It's if you have access or not, mm-hmm. right? And so at that point, I realized, okay, my computer science degree got me this interview and then you know, the ability to program any language got me the job. But I think the reason why I have a computer science degree is because I'm privileged. You know, I'm a white male with total privilege, right? So it's like, this system is not fair. (laughs) This is, this is not the way America is supposed to work, right? Where actually you get a job because you have privilege, you should get a job because you work hard, right? So I think that was the moment I decided to start Treehouse. I just thought, this system is totally broken. I, I would like to see if I can change it. So fast forward, you know, to 2016, we've taught hundreds of thousands of people how to code on Treehouse, right? It appears that it's working. You know, we've essentially synthesized a computer science degree down to its essence to get you a job. You know, we had products that were 25 bucks a month or $200 a month. We had launched what I think is the world's best online bootcamp. It's called the Tech Degree. It's 200 bucks a month. You know, it's everything you need out of bootcamp, but online. We had been doing all that. And then I had to look at the tech industry and ask myself the brutal question, is anything changing? And the answer is no. The, the wealth is still concentrated. Power is still concentrated among people that look like me. It, nothing has changed, right? So I guess I had to ask myself a brutal question, is what we're doing working? And the answer is not really. You know, I'm, I'm proud of the people we've served and I'm thankful for that, but is the system changing? And the answer is no, it's not. So at that point I was like, well, we need to rethink this. You know, we have to go deeper. And I basically got educated, you know, around systems of racism and sexism in America and what they've done and how they work and how you have to go deeper if you want to start to unwind those things to actually create access for everybody. So I read books like The New Jim Crow, watched 13th on Netflix, listened to Seeing White, which is a great podcast. And I just kind of learned, oh, you know, if you don't have access, you can't get in. It doesn't matter how hard you work, right? If no one tells you that you could code for a living because there's no one around you that can do that and you can't get education to do it, you're never going to get in. Like there's no door, right? And so what we did is really simple. We went to the boys and girls clubs. It was down the road and I met this amazing woman named Colleen. And I said, see if we can partner. You have amazing high potential talent graduating from the boys and girls clubs, right? You know who they are. Most of them are black or Latinx or women. 
why don't we unlock scholarships to our tech degree? And then we'll wrap it with, you know, extra mentorship and support and 21st century life skills. And we'll make sure everybody has a broadband and laptop. And then I'll go find employers to hire people as apprentices. This was 2016, 17. And it wasn't supposed to be a business or a product or anything. It was just, I want to do something about it. So Colleen and I were just donating all of our time. I mean, it was literally, I was doing, you know, mentorship calls at 6am and then, you know, visiting people at night and, you know, calling employers, you know, during lunch. I mean, it was, it was just pure, let's see if there's something that can be done to actually create equal opportunity, right? Because the America that we all believe in, that we want to exist is that there is the American dream. You can work hard, you can build wealth for your family. But the reality is that's not true for everybody. So how do you create equal access? So we built this primitive version of an apprenticeship program. It was free to the students. The employers funded all of it. So uh, we ended up getting Nike and Envision Treehouse to hire out of the program. It was small, it was five apprentices. And those people got placed at Nike and Envision and Treehouse and it worked. And I think at that moment I thought, whoa. <laughs> yeah. This works. Wait a minute. This is the education system of the future, right? Everybody in ed tech is trying to build the future of education and this is it, right? It's funded by employers. So it's free to students. There's no student debt. There's a guaranteed job at the end. It's hyper local. So you literally hire people from your neighborhood, right? It's diverse. It looks like America, right? And I just thought, I wonder if we can scale this, you know, what if in order to scale this, we have to get employers to fully fund it. It can't be volunteer work. And so I need to go find an employer and ask if they'll write a big check to run this program. And so I use my access, right? I know a lot of VPs, SVPs, CEOs, CTOs, and I called them and said, and one of the first guys I called was a guy named Eric Muntz at MailChimp. He was the VP of engineering in Atlanta. I basically was on the phone with him. I remember I was pacing in a conference room on, the, on a cell phone. And I said, Eric, I think we've built a system that works. I think it scales. I think it's, it's diverse. It's local. It creates software engineers. It's amazing, but you know, you just have to try it, just try it. And I said, you know, but it's not free. You got to write us a check so we can actually run this program for you. The phone went silent and I was like, hello. <laughs> and he waited a couple seconds and then he said, let's do it. Let's go. Right. And so MailChimp in Atlanta was our very first official apprenticeship program. So, and the model is brand new to coding. I enter into Treehouse. I pay $25 a month. No, nothing. It's totally free. So, I'll, I'll oh, so the whole school is free. Yeah, it's so, literally free. And there's no ISA. There's no income share agreement, mm -hmm. right? So, so the way it works is simple. You have companies that are, are losing the talent war, right? It's brutal. There's not enough talent, period. There's definitely not enough talent that looks like America, that's black, Latinx, women, LGBTQ. There's, there, there's, there's not enough talent, period. And Google and Facebook and Amazon are just buying it all, right? So every other company is left with no options. I mean, they're gonna lose, which means they're gonna go out of business someday, right? So we say to them, we have an answer. You can actually hire infinite numbers of software engineers, right? There actually is no lack of talent. It comes from your, literally your neighborhood because there's a boys and girls clubs in every neighborhood, every city, and you pay the, for the whole program. And then what they do is, is they quit their job 
and then they get paid to learn for three months. So you actually get paid to learn. It goes a step further, right? Because this is the other problem with boot camps, and it's kind of laughable if you think about it. Everyone's like, "This is so great!" You know, anyone can go to a boot camp. Well, anyone who cannot get paid for three months, right? Who who can do that? I mean, you already have to be privileged and wealthy to even think about doing that. You know, most people have to hold down a day job, and if they can't do that, they can't go to school, right? Do the income like Lambda School? Does that do they give you loans or anything? So Lambda School is free. Right. It's, it's all based but on, do they also give you living loans? No, no, this is the problem. Okay. Like, hmm. it, I mean, it's great. It's and, and I'm not knocking Lambda or any other school like that because they do serve people like they do do good. Like, but the problem is you have to be like up three rungs of the ladder to even take advantage of it. I mean, what, you know, the, the communities that we serve, you know, they often work at the Amazon fulfillment center or they work as nannies or they work in retail. I mean, they're, they can't quit that job to go to a school full-time because they have kids and they have a life. So, so what we do is we actually ask the employer to pay them a living wage hourly to go through our tech degree. So they get paid to learn. And then we see a high percentage of those people complete that program. It's a three month program. And then they get onboarded as apprentices at the company, right? And then the company then pays, pays them that living wage hourly, and they start to become software engineers at that company, right? And when do you make money? Do you make money at the conversion from apprentice to full-time? No, we say to the company, pay us to run this whole program. Uh, because see, the problem, hmm. the problem is, is that companies... No contingency, it's just they pay to run the program but, but the price of the engineers don't really get marked up at all. No. I mean, it's basically a subscription fee for, from their point of view. It is. I mean, but the, the beautiful thing is, you know, we typically create groups of five to ten apprentices at a time. So it's, oh, that's cool. It's very, it's very much in our interest that we have to be able to deliver high potential, amazing people, right? Otherwise, MailChimp doesn't want to work with us again, right? But the beauty is, is you know, and I'm just going to be blunt about a lot of like, you know, ethnicity stuff on this show today and gender stuff. Like imagine what if you were the only man at a company and you got put in and they were like, good luck. Hope it works out. How'd that feel? Well, okay. I mean, I can imagine a context in which it right, would, but, would feel not but great. But as men, as men, like we never, I mean, that never happens to us. <laughs> it certainly never happens to right. us. And so, so, you know, the reality is if you were the only woman that was brought in through a program like this, you may love your job, you may love the increase in wealth, but you probably won't stay because it's going to suck. For sure. Right. So the idea is let's create groups of people so they can support each other and not feel like they're alone. That's thing number one. But thing number two is in our program, we continue to support them after they convert from apprentice to full-time for three years, right? Because the problem is nothing matters if people don't stay in these jobs. It's, it's literally worthless, right? So if you get a job as a software engineer, but you don't stay because you're the only woman or you're the only black person or the only person who's gay, or lesbian or trans or queer you're just you're gonna leave does remote alleviate that by the way no because culture is everywhere right i mean the culture of a company lives on slack it lives on email it lives on zoom calls right so it may help but it may also harm i mean you could feel more isolated at home you know so the jury's out on that we've actually found remote absolutely doesn't work for apprentices because they feel so isolated 
So to finish the model, it's pretty simple. Like a company says, we need to hire software engineers. We need them to be looking like America, to be from diverse. And it needs to be in person. And it needs to be in person. And it has to come from our community here in Atlanta, Boston, New York, wherever. And they say, please run this program for us. And this is the problem. Everybody wants a diverse workforce. Everybody wants to hire software engineers, but nobody has the muscle memory of how to run true apprenticeship programs, Hmm. right? So we basically, you know, so MailChimp said yes, and then Verizon said yes, and HubSpot said yes, and Adobe said yes, and Niantic, and EasyCater, and Toast. And, and basically, we have focused the entire company now on apprenticeship. We are still offering our tech degree online, which is great. It empowers people. It's a wonderful program. And it is the backbone of our apprenticeship program, right? So sounds really cool and sounds legitimately useful and like a legitimately good business model. And I think it's the timing is particularly good because online content has gotten extremely good. I mean, I started Software Engineering Daily four years ago, and since then I think there have been hundreds of more software engineering podcasts that have come out. It's just proliferating. I mean, teaching how to code is hard, but it's not a moat to protect your company. Right. Right. And we're really good at it, just to be clear. So, you know, one of our tech degrees, one of our most popular ones, has an MPS of 73. I mean, it it's off the charts good, but that's still not good enough, right? You have to get people jobs. You have to make sure they stay in those jobs. You have to provide what we call 21st century workplace skills. You know, how do you use Slack effectively? How do you do agile? How do you act as an effective worker in a modern, you know, workplace? Like these are actually really important and actually really hard to teach. What's useful about those luckily don't get stale as no. quickly as something like React. Like if you yeah. some of your <laughs> Which, React lessons, like four years ago, the React lesson plan is like, oh, well, you gotta throw that out. I mean, it's, it's every 18 months if you're lucky. Every right? 18 months. Yeah. And that's your, actually a long your time. Your curriculum rotates every 18 months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and so it is hard to teach people how to code, but that's actually not the secret sauce. The secret sauce is finding employers and creating talent, you know, for them. I think that's just the key. So that's the big thing we're doing. This is, you know, we've really focused on this over the last two years. So you asked about the last four years, what, you know, what has happened and, you know, it's interesting because I have an extremely long-term timeline, right? So a lot of my, you know, fellow founders out there have, you know, sold their companies, right? So you look at Code School, you look at Thinkful, you look at a ton of them, right? They're slowly selling their companies or going out of business, right? Because it's really hard. Lynda.com. Yeah. Well, Lynda, yeah, Lynda, I guess, got bought by LinkedIn. That's which a pretty hefty acquisition. Yeah. But the point is, I think the the creating an education company that truly transforms generational wealth and empowers people is extremely hard. And it's not something you do in three years. It's not even something you do in 10 years. It takes, you know, a quarter of a century minimum. So I think we're just prepared to do the work, you know, for decades. You know, I raised money very early on and we didn't raise much. And and so my wife and I control uh, the board and the company and you know, we really have. I was actually going to ask you about this, like this, because even your Series B was like pretty small. And it was a long time ago. Right. Long time ago. I mean, it was ago. 7 million bucks and it was like 2013. That was so, six years ago. Well, it's it's interesting because <laughs> there, there are these companies that because they have, I mean, so the norm, at least in the news of Silicon Valley is 
you're a money losing company for a long, long time, yeah. and your rounds get successively bigger and bigger and bigger. But some companies develop a business model that makes them money. Yeah, shockingly. Shockingly. So I was going to pull up a tweet from Aaron Levy this morning. And it made me laugh. He said, I'll try to summarize it because I won't be able to find it quickly. He basically said, let me summarize everything I've ever learned about how to build a good company. (laughs) And he said, you know, number one, get profitable. Number two, you know, build a product that people actually want to pay you for. Number three, I mean, it was just, it's everything that you don't hear about in Silicon Valley. Yeah. You know, we're all, oh, don't optimize for private valuations, right? And basically what he's saying is all of this stuff you hear is actually BS that's coming from investors because, you know, what we see often in through the VC kind of engine is that it's a form of a Ponzi scheme, right? Really what it is, is it's about putting money in, raising the apparent valuation of a company so that then you can sell it to the next investor. Not uniformly. In many cases, yeah, yes. Most of the time. I mean, you know, there's some great investors out there who are doing good stuff. And there are some companies that, yes, they need funding. I mean, you look at like a Beyond Meat. I mean, you're making literally meat, you know, from plants. Like, that's something that you got to raise a lot of money for. But, I mean, even arguably Uber. I mean, if you don't do that, somebody else is. Yeah, but Uber's an outlier. I mean, like, I think that's a problem. We look at these companies and say, this is how we all should run our company. This is what we should all aspire for. And the reality is, you know... They're complete outliers. Well, but there's gradations like Slack. You know, okay, Microsoft is coming out with Teams, right? Like, and they're in that position. You know, even imagining Slack as a company that, if they would have, I mean, well, even Slack in its earliest days, they were a game, right? They said, okay, we're gonna have a huge upfront game never cost. Ending. Yep. Yeah, game never ending. So there's gradations, right? There is. I think the problem is people are distracted and they forgot about what this is all about, which is solving a problem you care about, right? And whether that's a big problem or a small problem, it, it shouldn't matter. It should matter to you. And what we're told is every problem has to be a big problem, right? That's the only problems that matter, right? And the truth is there's a lot of amazing founders out there who are passionate about problems that aren't going to be billion-dollar companies. They shouldn't raise any money. Hey, you're looking at one. Right, right. And that's great. I mean, I, honestly, I think that's healthy and good. So we need more of that. We also need, you know, I was talking about this on Instagram this morning, just saying I'm kind of tired of the crushing it, winning culture thing on social that we all feel that we all have to promote that I'm a part of, you know, why, why can't we just all be honest about what's happening? Right. Which is if we're doing something that's worth doing, there are bigs up, big ups and big downs. Right. And we should be honest about that because if you don't, you end up going sort of crazy. Right. So that's kind of a journey I've been through, you know, I, I bit, you know, on a hook that was the Silicon Valley venture hook, right? And said, hey, everyone should be building a billion dollar company, you know, and then realized, oh, education is actually a much longer term thing. Hmm. It's much harder than I thought. And I was able to save my company, right? Because I, Interesting. I didn't raise much money and I control it. And I was able to, you know, ratchet down the costs and think long term and and build profit. How do you do that, by the way? Like, how do you do that while raising money? How do you maintain autonomy while raising money? Just, you know, raise the absolute minimum amount. That's the key, right? And is there some, but is there some inflection point where you lose that control and you can no longer... Because so, just to be clear, so you're in a situation where you personally can still have a big outcome and feel like a successful business person, much deserved, while you have also been able to raise money. Yeah, which is a little weird, 
I mean, it's, I guess what, what we did is raise money, a little money early, right? And then stopped raising and forced ourselves to figure out how to get net, net cash flow positive. And what kind of terms do you have to give up in those? You know what's interesting? I think the truth is, is that you can maintain control of your company if you just try to build a profitable company. I mean, in the end, all companies need to be profitable, right? So I think the goal is actually solve a problem you care about and figure out how to be sustainable. But okay, but then at this point, like, do you have to go to your investors and say, look, I'm going to give you dividends or look, this is the cost of not owning that much of my company or look, I'm going to refund you or look, I'm going to give you two X. I've said, listen uh, to them, you know, this is where we're going. I will do my best to deliver a return you know, for you. Okay. You know, cause I'm a moral person. Sure. Right. You know? And so the idea is, well, you know, let me keep working hard and then maybe we'll swap you out with other investors. Right. So we'll basically, you know, do a secondary, Yeah. you know, and you know, but the truth is a lot of venture capitalists write you off, you know, uh, if not f- legally, emotionally, you know, at some point and they realize, eh, you know, this may or may not be, you know, a 10 X return they write for me. You off or they write your business off? Both. Really? Uh, well, I mean, you know, so the way, this is why I said the way venture works, it's designed to optimize for the one Uber. It's not designed to be optimized for the nine other businesses. I get that, but like the investors themselves, I mean, can't they be realistic and sympathetic? Yeah, but they only have so much time. So, so I do have sympathetic, wonderful investors, you know, Bridget Lau, is on my board. She's from social capital. She's a wonderful person, right? But she only has so many minutes in the day, right? So she can't care equally about me than she does for another investment that's going to make her a lot more money. But does she have resentment when you say, look, it didn't end up being the market that I interpreted? No, no. Okay. Yeah, they all get it. I mean, they realize. But what's, what's interesting is I just want to create a large impact on people's lives. That's actually why I started Treehouse, right? So I'm not trying to optimize for financial gain. I'm more interested in leaving the world in a better place than when I found it, right? So I think that's why there's so much focus that you hear about me talking about, you know, equity and diversity and inclusion, you know. If I could play a part in actually making America more like what we want it to be, which is equal opportunity does exist and you can work hard and, you know, build wealth for your family. If I could be a part of that, then I would be the happiest person in the world. And the truth is I am happy every day now because I am working on that every day. So a lot, I mean, there's a lot of life lessons, you know, that have gone through this. And I think the most important thing I want people to hear is that you have to kind of dig down deep and figure out what it is that you really care about. It's so easy to get distracted and care about what everybody else wants you to care about, whether that's, you know, I want to be able to raise big rounds or I want to, you know, be thought of as a very successful CEO. I want people to write books about me. I mean, all those things, right? And you end up going, "Ah, actually, I don't know if any of that matters, right? You know, so if you think backwards in your life, you know, say you're about to die and you think, what do I actually want to have been true about my life? And then you start to filter for what really matters. And I've just realized, you know what? I want to, I want to be in love with my wife. I want to be a good dad. And I want to truly serve people uh, and open up opportunity for them. Like that's really what matters to me. And I think we can build a good business doing that. You can build a sustainable business that way as well. You just have to focus on it and try to ignore all the noise. I mean, there's just so much noise. So, and 
ultimately, you know, that's what's led us to this idea of creating a movement around what we're doing. The idea is, you know, we figured out how to do apprenticeships. It's scaled massively. So we started with five apprentices at, you know, two companies. And now we're, we're, we're placing 110 apprentices in nine cities across America. And what we decided to do was, you know what, let's go big. Let's see if we could possibly begin to change the system in America. And so what we did is we partnered up with the Boys and Girls Clubs and an amazing nonprofit called AnitaB.org. Just real quick, this does seem like something that could potentially have a massive financial outcome. Yeah, I mean, it, it could, but I, it's that's not the point, you know? I mean, I think every company in America in 10 years is going to be using apprenticeship, not colleges. Totally. Right. So, yes, it could be. I mean, we could be the company that literally creates the I don't even know if you would be, need to be the company. I right. mean, so this is one of those things like... A company. Well, yeah, it's like, this is one of those things where there's, if you take a step back and you look at the technology we have available and you look at the current system we have, it looks ridiculous. Mm. It is. It's, it is ridiculous. It's horse-drawn carriages. Yeah. It's almost laughable. I mean, it's... Companies actually spend, on average, $3 million more than they need to for a group of five software engineers if they hire from the traditional path, right? If they would just use apprenticeship, I it would act. that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's shocking, and I think everyone will look back. It's just like, it's like smoking. I mean, everybody yeah. smoked, and then, everyone, yeah. and then we realized it's killing everybody, Yeah. right? And the current talent pipeline is killing America, like, and it's driving us to trillions of dollars of student debt. Like it, it's literally cancer, right? And so I think what we're saying is, wait a minute, there's a sustainable, local, diverse talent pipeline. It's right here. And you know, the phrase is overused, but it's true. The future is here. It's just not evenly distributed, right? So we're seeing the future of the talent pipeline right now at MailChimp, HubSpot, EasyCater, Verizon, like it's the future. It's totally. better. Like, totally. So I think you're right. I mean, I think we're going to build something really big and I'm excited about that. And there's other things you can layer on top of that. I mean, just like you might not have been able to anticipate when you started Treehouse, this can be leveraged into an apprenticeship platform. Yeah. Everything, I never thought of that. Everything cool that you can build that has economies of scale, there are other platforms you can build on top of that. Yep. And they become higher and higher margin. Yeah. Yeah. So it be, I mean, we're going to end up building the largest alumni network in America. That's going to be great. There's going to be a lot of power to that, right? Mm. And we will have loyalty from our alumni that right. makes loyalty to your college look like a joke. Right. Right? Well, see, this is another thing that we is, we're totally in our infancy of is reputation systems online. Right. Right? And because you have Facebook, which is awesome. You have LinkedIn, which is like kind of good in, in that sense, like the reputation. But like there's still not a great way to really just like broadcast to the world your reputation. You know, like I, I try to hire people on Fiverr and I still make mistakes and they yeah. have tons of five-star reviews. Yeah. This should be the most direct reputation system, but you know, here's another nuanced reputation system that you're building, an alumni network. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. And the beautiful thing is, you know, we really care about our apprentices being successful and converting into full-time employees because that's why we serve them. We really care that they blossom into amazing software engineers because that helps our customers, the companies, 
and then they want to hire more talent through totally. us, right? So it's properly incentivized, so right? How do you price it? Profitably. <laughs> I mean, th- this is the thing is it has to be sustainable, otherwise it doesn't work, right? So, you know, we figured out a price point that is affordable to companies that they'll say yes to, but also is sustainably profitable for us. How operationally intensive is it? It's intense. You know, I mean, this is the thing. Everybody wanted this magic, you know, tech ed thing. <laughs> You're like, it's a spreadsheet. Yeah. You know, I mean, in, in, in that you would magically learn online and like transform your whole life. It's like the, life doesn't work like that. It's too messy. People are too messy. They're too complex. They're too wonderful. Right. To be turned into SaaS software. I mean, so I think what we found is we were, you know, everything's luck. It really is like timing and luck. And we were lucky that we built one of the world's best online education systems, right? We've been working on this for a decade now, right? We have an extremely high MPS, like all that helps, right? We, we basically have the best possible online education system in the world, but you still have to- And have, have you ironed out the operational like difficulties of that? Do you feel like yeah, that? that? So that's really straightforward and we're really good at creating online education, nice. but-, but and that's not easy, right? We have, no, we like, have studios, we have video. full-time employees, oh, wow. okay. we have, you know, so the tech degree is our online boot camp, and it's 12, it's 10, 12 projects that are punctuated throughout our curriculum. Those projects are graded. There's Slack channels where you have support from, from real people. Mm-hmm. It's school. I mean, I think everybody tried to abstract the school from online education that, you know, it's almost like the matrix where you would just be infused with knowledge and your life would change, you know, that isn't, that's not real. Wait, can I just say again, okay, the fact that you have, you have like a studio, like you have all this good infrastructure that you've built, this to me seriously seems like such a good use of venture capital. The fact that you like compare that to like a debt financing, like just from a straight up financial perspective, yep. like that's a pretty good use of venture capital. I mean, just economically from your perspective, like thinking of it strategically of a situation, and this is speaking very much selfishly, not that I'm like thinking of raising venture capital, but the the premise of like, because I've had some conversations recently with people like about kind of the, the NDVC model, you know, which can mean different things. But just the idea that there is theoretically gradations between the Uber type of venture capital and straight up debt. Yeah. Right? Like there's a lot of gradations there. Yeah. Thinking of venture capital as look, the entrepreneur has the freedom to remain independent while raising venture capital. That to me seems like an appealing premise. Yeah, it is. You know what's interesting though? All this comes down to it's a sales job, right? It turns out that raising money or doing anything in life is a sales process, right? And so in the end, you're going to end up having meetings with people and what you're selling has to be compelling, right? And so you really can't automate it. You can't really generalize around it. It, you know, I, I just read the book, Super Pumped, which is about Travis. Man, Cowley. I had to stop reading that. I had to st- it's so cynical. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's, it, but what I, what I found out, what I thought was interesting about it is reading a part, the parts around how Travis raised money and how he's really good at it. Okay, I'll have to keep reading it. You know, raising money is a sales process and it you just have to be really good what at it. What do you think of Mike Isaac's tirade against like Silicon Valley? I, I think he's he right. so negative. Uh, I think he's right. 
about a lot of it. A lot. I mean, there's a lot of. He basically generalizes the worst behavior of Uber to being the average of the Silicon Valley startup culture. Yeah, I. You know, there's a lot of things that are broken in Silicon Valley. There's some things that are right, but I. I'm not really trying to focus on all that. The things that I'm trying to focus on are how do you get people access to wealth? Right. Right. It. You know. And better audiobooks. Yeah, and better audiobooks. There you go. So I guess the idea is. If we can create access for more people, America is better, right? Period. You get the GDP. I read a report by McKinsey about the racial wealth gap. And it's fascinating because basically it looks like America is leaving over a trillion dollars of GDP on on the table by perpetuating the wealth gap. Like it's not good for anybody that there is an equal access to opportunity, right? It's really not good. And So uh, I think that there is a future that is possible where there is actually equal opportunity. It doesn't mean there's equality, right? There's a big difference in equality and equity, right? So equity means everybody starts at the same starting line and then you got to run hard, right? But you got to get everybody the same starting line. Otherwise there is an equal opportunity, right? What's the smallest company that you've been able to win over with the apprenticeship model? Or do you like ratchet down down and up the price based on? No, it's the, it's the same price. It You know what's interesting is it's five to 10 apprentices. That's our typical model. Verizon looks like they may be. So have. You, make, you, you make a guarantee? No, it's not a guarantee. I mean, the idea is we're going to put the, a certain number of people in front of you and you just have to agree to hire them as apprentices. You do not have to convert them because, you know, that's that's not a realistic scenario where you say, I'm going to give you somebody and they're going to be perfect and then you have to hire them. Right, right, right. right. The world doesn't work like that. Right. So the idea is... I mean, people even get fired from apprenticeships. Yeah, I mean, you know, also stuff happens. That's pretty rare, pretty life, rare. Life happens, right? You know, people, maybe their parent dies or they have to move. I mean, there's a lot of things that can go, you know, that can change in people's lives that cause people not to convert to full-time that have nothing to do with performance, right? But the idea is a company says, hey, we want to hire five to 10 apprentices. And we say, great, here's the price and let's go, you know? And we run the whole program from beginning to end, and then we continue to support them for three years, and and it works. You know, so far we have 100% conversion from apprentice to, to FTE. It's bonkers, right? We were planning on a lot What's less. What's the sample size? So far, 20 converted apprentices. Really? Yeah. 100% 20, per- wow. So it's going really well. I mean, it, but that's, and it's gonna normalize. It'll probably reduce to maybe 80% Right, you've probably conversion. been super selective about. No, no, we're not being selective, hmm. right? You know, that's absolutely what we're not doing. I mean, there's a mix. These so, are random people making it? Okay, well, I guess they're people who apply. So yeah, they're people who apply. I mean, and then, you know, what we do is we ask them to complete 20 hours of curriculum on Treehouse, which also selects for people's desire to be software engineers, you know? You can't complete that if you don't want to, if you don't enjoy a software engineering programming. And then we do do interviews and, you know, but we're not doing this culture fit crap or any of that kind of stuff. It's more about, do you have grit? Are you creative? You know, and do you like solving problems? Right. And it turns out there are a lot of people in America like that, right? They're not just people coming out of MIT and Stanford, right? It turns out that there's amazing talent coming out of the boys and girls clubs. So one thing I wanted to make sure to do on the podcast is tell everybody about a big movement that we're launching. 
So you'll probably hear this after the fact, but tomorrow we are launching a movement called Project Unlock the American Dream.org. And what we're doing is we're partnering with a nonprofit. So the idea is Anitabe.org runs the Grace Hopper Celebration, which is the world's largest gathering of women technologists. It's 26,000 women are going to be at the conference in uh, Orlando. And they have this network of amazing women across the country. A lot of them are women of color. And so we're partnering with them uh, and with the Boys and Girls Clubs to source talent, right? So we're going to be sourcing talent from the need to be community and the Boys and Girls Clubs across the the nation. And then we're going to empower 100,000 Americans to become software engineers over the next 10 years. And what's bonkers about the program is the impact it has on people's lives. So already we're seeing with the communities we're serving that their median income goes from 21K to 62K. So we're seeing a tripling of people's incomes in less than 12 months. Before the program, only one out of three had access to healthcare. Now we're seeing 100% have access to healthcare because it's provided by their employer, right? So we, you know, we're serving families where they can't take their kids to the doctor in America, right? And now they can, right? It's a complete game changer. That's and, great. And it's what, you know, it's easy to forget how important that is when you're a person like me. Like, I've always had healthcare. Right. And it's always been provided my, by my employer and no, my parents. No, it's life-changing. Yeah. So that's bonkers. And then the really cool part is the generational wealth piece. So, you know, it turns out to have access in America, you have to have generational wealth. It's kind of how you get access, right? And so the way you build generational wealth is you have to be able to save into something like a 401k. You have to be able to do that. And so we train our apprentices as soon as they convert to contribute at least 6% into their 401k. And if you model that out really conservatively, so a 6% contribution on a 62k salary, say you never get a raise, worst case scenario. Say you don't get an employer match, worst case scenario. And say you get a kind of subpar return, you know, it's like a a reasonable return on your investment. You're going to go from the median net worth of black and Latinx families in America. We're talking net worth, not salary in America is $18,000, right? We're taking those families from $18,000 net worth to a very likely $3 million value of that 401k by the end of their life at age 79. I mean, that will literally change America right? Because then people will actually have wealth they can pass on to their kids. So their kids don't have to start three laps behind, you know, and then they can get a mortgage and then they can, it's just, and then you can start offering 401k as your next business. Right. There you go. We We probably will do that. I mean, it's just, I'm just so excited that this is possible. Totally. And it's, it's, it's mind blowing. Yeah. I, it's pretty neat as well. And the other cool thing I've realized, and by the way, it's not even very hard to learn to be a programmer. This is the crazy thing. It's straightforward. Yeah, it's not, it, it isn't rocket science. It's solving puzzles and being creative and, you know. I just want to ask you about this here. Do you think the low code stuff has legs? What is, in, I don't in know about business? that, low yeah, code. You haven't heard of low no, code or no code? This is the advantage of not living in Silicon Valley, oh, right. by the way. So you haven't seen the, you know, like Airtable or Webflow. Oh, sure, yeah. Or like Wix.com. So these things are getting really good. Yeah, true. So, uh, you know, I know you can mix Zapier or Zapier with with Airtable and all of a sudden you're like, I don't, maybe I don't need a developer. Yes, but it's kind of like, it's simplifying reality, which is 
we kind of said that about cars that, you know, they were going to be flying by now and that we were going to have, <laughs> you know, jetpacks. <laughs> I mean, yes, you know, Zapier and Airtable is great and that's going to be wonderful, but it doesn't abstract away humans who need to solve problems. So absolutely the way we solve problems is going to change, but it's not going to abstract away humans anytime soon. Right. So I, I think people who code are really people who solve problems. Like that's all we're doing is we're creating people who solve problems. The tooling is going to get better and better. Right. I mean, it's like when David Hanemeyer Hansen, you know, introduced rails. Yeah. We just thought the whole world was going to change. Totally. Well, it did. And it did. But, you know, where are we now? Oh, man, I think that totally increased the the market of the, the total market of developers. But does it mean developers went away or like they didn't code? No, but that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, will it change your curriculum in the sense that like, of course, if that's a lower hanging fruit, like maybe you instead of starting people with whatever, create React app or sketch or I don't, I don't know where you start with, but like low code seems like a pretty cool place to start and if you plateau there you can still have that's still a great you yeah. could be a low code operational person at a company totally no you're right and actually what's interesting is we're kind of going that direction where you know it turns out that business analysts right you know who are pre-data scientists right are extremely in demand and basically they're using tools like altrix and you know Airtable, and i mean and you're right so that's absolutely where we're going to end up going, I think, is creating an army of people who can solve problems for corporate America and build wealth in the process. It's going to be really fun. And we're already spinning up partnerships like that. Like we partner with Adobe to create a UX oh. curriculum, right? Because it's like, oh, we don't need to just what create it, software. What does a partnership mean? Uh, partnership means we, we go to them and say, hey, you're a market leader. We would like to create people that can do X skill. Uh-huh. And you know, part of the curriculum is going to be your tooling. So why don't you pay us to help us build that curriculum? Ha, that's great. And it works. You it's, are a good salesman. Yeah, it works. It's great. Yeah, everybody wins. Like, and also we can attach it, you know, towards a, we're going to literally empower people that are black and Latinx mm. and LGBTQ and women to create wealth for their families for the first time. You should go talk to Webflow. They just raised a Series A. Well, there we go. Let's do it. So uh, Webflow, if you're listening, give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I am optimistic about the future. I think actually if we go back to our roots and say the American dream is a real thing and it can happen. And it's beautiful because I talk to Republicans and I talk to Democrats and I talk to people in the middle and everybody believes in the American dream. Yeah. Everybody wants it to happen. And I think technology can do a lot of it because the thing is we're at this point right now where everybody can operate Instagram intelligently. Mm -hmm. Like there's very savvy Instagram users who don't think they can learn to code and maybe they can't learn to code in the current paradigm or maybe they're blocked from learning to code in the current paradigm but you know the difficulty of learning to be a savvy instagram user is like it's pretty can, hard it's pretty hard <laughs> yeah, right. it's technically difficult yeah i know so people are getting hung up on oh well coding and it's like, no, all coding is, is using tools to solve problems, right? That's what you're saying. Instagram is a tool to solve a problem. If you can learn that, you can learn all sorts of stuff, right? And so it's like we're dumbing down everybody and saying, you can't, you're not capable of doing yeah. it. And it's like, wait a minute. No, most people are hardworking and intelligent. Mm. They just don't have the opportunity. Mm. And, you know, one of the things people are going to see is that we're rebranding our logo to a ladder, 
right? So right now it's a frog mm-hmm. hand. We're going to oh, re-rank okay. to a ladder because oh, I like that. we want to build jobs. We want to build the ladder to jobs in tech. Sure. Right? So it's like people just need a ladder. If there's a ladder, then they'll run up it, right? And we've been pulling up the ladder on people for years saying, ah, oh, you didn't go to the right school, you know? Oh, you know, you don't look like me. And therefore you don't get the ladder. And it's like, nah, that's not the way America's supposed to work. You know, you should be able to look like whatever you look like and, you know, be whatever gender you want to be and still get access, right? That's what we all deeply want to happen. So I know you got to get out of here in like five minutes, but what are the, give me some, like, take me inside the technical process of building this apprenticeship system and what are the technical risks, the execution risks of this shift in focus that you've made? Well, the risk is that a lot of it is human. (laughs) I mean, it's, you know, a lot of online education is kind of funny because you're abstracting away the actual person from the process. And people are very complex, you know. I mean, you know, do you even know your own mind about why you do things, why you quit, why you don't quit? No, neither do I. I mean, I was literally, I was putting on Instagram this morning. I was frustrated because I'm trying not to eat a bunch of carbs and I'm trying not to drink during the week. And last night I had a Manhattan (laughs) and a Coors Light and ate an ice cream sandwich. (laughs) You know, why did I do that? It's like, and I woke up and I was like, damn it. Right. And, but it's like, so we don't even know our own minds and how they work. So kind of presuming that, you know, we're going to put online education in front of people and it's magically going to create opportunity is kind of hilariously naive. So there's that. But so the complexity, the risk is you're dealing with real people actually and their real lives. You know, it's gotten way more real. Like I now no longer have the luxury of kind of abstracting away humans and what goes wrong with education anymore. Like when, when, an apprentice goes through a program and they start not succeeding, you know, that's a real person that we know, right? They have real kids, they have real experiences, like, and you just can't pretend to, you know, abstract it away. So I think, you know, what I'm talking about is all the stuff that happens to people. You have, you know, psychology, you have, you know, decades of training, you know, people how to think and how to feel. And, and you have systematic racism and sexism in America that operates every day, right? So you have all these real things that you, you can't change quickly for people. So that's the hard part about what we do, but it's also the, the magic. Oh my gosh. You know, we have stories. One of our first apprentices, his name was Hector. And He's Latino and we met him and he started going through the program and he worked at the Amazon Fulfillment Center. And I remember him just lighting up and, and loving, you know, learning these, these tools and how to solve problems and how to control computers. And, and then what happened, and and I never would have predicted this is that his parents said, wait a minute, are you thinking about not going back to college? You know, if you, if this happens and you get placed at this company, are you going to drop out of college? And he was like, yeah, because I'm going to get paid a ton of money and I'm doing something I love at a company where I have healthcare. And like 
his parents had been trained right. to believe that the path to success was the college degree. Hey, speaking of misperceptions, don't you think the FBA, the, the, the Amazon Fulfillment Centers, I think those are totally misperceived. I think people perceive those as sweatshops, but mm. they're, they're actually like these pretty solid bases to begin working. Yeah, I don't know a lot of details. All I know, you know, Hector was working hard and he got paid hourly. He wasn't, as far as I could tell, mistreated or anything, but he had to work a lot to make a living wage, you know? I mean, I, I don't want to say his salary on air, but, he you know. more than Starbucks, though. Well, maybe. Maybe. I mean, it depends. It maybe. depends on time of year. Sure. Yeah. So Probably depends on your manager. Depends all, all on a lot. Yeah. But the point is, he was not making very much money. I mean, like, barely livable, right? And then, you know, he gets converted and works at Nike now, and he is making something like, so one, two, he's making five X his current income. And but beautiful though, he's like, hey, guess what? I can help my parents turn electricity back on now. Totally. I mean, he just gives all the money back to his parents. His, you know, his parents have worked extremely hard to support him, but they don't have access to building wealth. And so now, and I remember asking him every day when, you know, how happy are you? Can you rate your happiness on a scale of one to 10? 10 is the happiest you've ever been. One is you feel like you're going to die. And he kept saying 9.5. And I was like, you, Hector, you don't have to say that. And he said, I've never been this happy. Like, he's like, you don't understand. Totally. Like I get paid to create things. I like, see this all the time. It's just, he's like, I, I'm in a room with people that are nice to me and like believe in me and want me to win. And, and I don't have to work obscene hours anymore. And I just work normal hours and there's food here. I mean, he's just like, I'm like, that's what we do every day at Treehouse. Like, that's why I get up to come to work every day is for stories like that. And it's, it's an honor to be able to do it. Okay. Last question. What's the biggest mistake you've made in the business? <laughs> oh, I'm only allowed to list one. Gosh. I mean, there's so many mistakes. You know, the biggest one is not realizing as a CEO, I needed to be a salesman or a salesperson. Wow. You know, I thought, oh, I'm the founder CEO. You know, I really understand product and I want to solve this problem. Mm. And, and I just thought sales was this dirty thing that, you know, other people do. And I just learned the hard way. Actually, your whole life is selling. And if you don't, feel comfortable selling, you're going to hurt your company. You're going to hurt yourself. So if you're listening to this, please learn how to sell. It's not that hard. Actually, you just have to, you know, talk to people about something, talk to enough of them, and then one of them will come out the bottom, right? It's a skill you can learn. So yeah, sales, but now I honestly, I love sales. Now it's fun. It's most of the time. It's fun. Sometimes it really sucks. <laughs> you know, when you get no's, you get lots of no's. You know, I've gotten several no's the last couple of weeks, you know. It's a good humility calibrator. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, you know, eight out of ten people are going to say no to you. I mean, so my chief of staff said something helpful. He's like, you know, did you know that Babe Ruth struck out the most times out of anybody? You know, and Babe Ruth is a famous baseball player, if you don't know. And, and I was like, wow, I never thought about that. I mean, he hit the most home runs, but I didn't think about it. He struck out the most. And I, I do think there's some amazing truth in that. And so now when I strike out, I'm like, cool, it's just another at bat, another at bat. And I hate sports by the way, and hate sport analogies, but I think it's, I think it's relevant. So Ryan, thanks for coming back on. Great talking to you. It was really fun. I'm going to plug myself and say, <laughs> go to Instagram.com forward slash Ryan Carson or Twitter.com forward slash Ryan Carson. I'd love to talk to you. Thanks. <laughs>